Midwife Calling. Hello and welcome to Poplar Opinion, a Call the Midwife podcast. We are watching every episode of Call the Midwife one by one and talking about it without spoilers. I'm Jan Moffat. I'm Dr. Paul Moffat. Not that kind of doctor. And this week we have watched, and are talking about, Season 4, Episode 5 of Call the Midwife. This episode was directed by Dominic Leclerc and written by Carolyn Bonnyman. This is Dominic Leclerc's first episode of Call the Midwife. He has directed a lot of British shows I have never seen, including 30 episodes of Coronation Street, which I've heard of, <laughs> at least. Um, people really like Coronation Street. People do. This is Carolyn Bonnyman's first episode, too. She has written barely anything, but this isn't going to be her last episode of Call the Midwife. Jan, do you want to take us through this episode? Absolutely. We begin, as usual, with our mature Jenny narration. She talks about the heat of summer, and we see various nuns and midwives in that heat. Sister Julienne delivers a baby boy to the Prendergasts. The father prays at the kitchen table with a, with a pastor. Dr. Turner is taking on extra patients for the two other doctors, and Sheila worries about him. After breaking her engagement in the last episode, Trixie is getting rid of the engagement presence and ignoring Patsy's attempt to talk about Tom. Barbara speaks to a South Asian woman on the street, but she doesn't speak English. Her son translates for her, but runs off to school before Barbara can get any extra information. At the mother house, we briefly see Sister Evangelina she chats with Cynthia, now Sister Mary Cynthia, and sends her on her way back to Poplar. Sister Julianne later visits Prendergast, whose baby Raymond is crying non-stop and thinks he has a broken collarbone. Sister Mary Cynthia returns and is put on district nursing instead of midwifery, since she'll have studies as well as nursing, and she is sent off to care for diphtheria patients. A diphtheria patient. Oh, There's only a one. A diphtheria patient. There's not an outbreak. <laughs> it, it's yes. a very isolated case of a very unusual disease in London at this time. Because mm -hmm. there are vaccines for it. Because there are vaccines. And there still are. <laughs> it continues to be an unusual disease in countries where vaccines are available. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot to mention that uh, the Prendergasts, uh, it's Janice Prendergast is the mother in that and the case. father is ray is ray yeah ray and raymond i wondered when we first heard when i first saw this and we first heard his name was raymond i'm like is he named after raymond nonatus but no his father is ray and they're <laughs> and they're christian scientists not uh not anglicans. anglicans um where do you want to start do you want to talk about i, I... where do you want to start <laughs> clearly um well I like to, to just mention the uh, voiceover Jenny 
Mm -hmm. Um, She's talking about the sun and the blazing sun as both medicine and tonic. Mm -hmm. And we have a setup here of like, the sun is uncomfortable, but also it is welcomed. Mm -hmm. All through the episode, the characters are complaining about the heat. But we start off as like, the sun cures things. The sun helps things. It makes everyone feel better. Um, And then to like, look ahead a little bit uh, to preempt some things. But you can easily guess it. The sun is medicine and tonic, but it's not good enough medicine and tonic. And yes. people are getting sick anyway. Mm-hmm. And not every episode of Call the Midwife has, like, sickness. But this episode has plenty of sickness. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so the sun as medicine and tonic is not uh, working, really. And we see our share of sunburns in this episode as well. <laughs> we do. The other thing, like, I feel like we should talk about some the kind of uh, minor threads in this first section. Mm-hmm. Some of them get will get fleshed out more going forward. But, like, we have Patrick, tired and overworked. We have Trixie returning her engagement uh, gifts. And we have uh, Mary Cynthia back. Mm-hmm. What do you want to talk about? Any of those things? All of them at once? I don't have a lot to say about any of them, but I want to kind of address them and move on to the bigger stuff of this section i feel like uh dr turner from the very start of this episode later on it feels like this whole episode is actually about him Hmm. and so it is a good place to start is that he's overworked he's always been overworked ever Mm -hmm. since we first met him but he is extra overworked he's not only doing his own work he's taking on the work of everyone else and i think that is what Dr. Turner is like. And we can talk about this more later on in the episode as well. But Dr. Turner is just a give, give, give person mm-hmm. to the point of neglecting his own health. And we all know people like this now. Like this is a common thing for people who are givers, people who see need and go and help that you can give to the point of hurting your own self and sometimes uh we need to remember to take a step back and doctor physician heal thyself you know yeah. when we have that beginning that like he takes on 40 extra patients yeah. because some other doctor is going on vacation and sheila has her little like vacation would be nice yeah and he's exactly like, next year yeah. <laughs> okay <laughs> uh can I just say as a side note, um, is Timothy taking care of Angela? Who is taking care of Angela? I mean, I guess, I just, I guess we assume that they have some kind of nanny or sitter but mm. that we never see. But like, they have a small child. Like they have a, a small child and they both old. seem to work full time. Exactly. It's a little odd. And Timothy must have school. Well, it's summer. Oh, it is summer. There's a line later on, uh, like a throwaway line almost where Sheila says to Timothy, thank you for holding down the fort. Yeah. But that is, does that include like literally taking care of his baby sister? I think that moment was like taking care of uh, Dr. Turner. Yeah, exactly. In the household. But we got to like, I think, yeah, he must be helping. <laughs> he must be <laughs> taking care of his baby sister all the time. It's just a question I always have is I don't feel like it's ever clear who is taking care of the Turner's children at a given moment. <laughs> yeah. 
Timothy doesn't need taking care of. It's uh, the 60s and he's over the age of 11. Yeah, but, it's true. Uh, <laughs> it's the 50s at this point. Oh, it's the, only the 50s still. Only the 50s still. I can't keep track of how slowly time moves because time moves slower than it is. <laughs> yes, that's very true. That's very true. Um, or not at the same pace. Anyway, the number of years that have passed is not the number of years that has passed. Uh, <laughs> do you want to talk about Trixie for a bit? Ugh, I'm just sad about her and she doesn't want to talk about it. Yeah. I feel like Patsy. Like, you want to talk about it? And just no. She doesn't. No. She's returning her engagement gifts and looking longingly at the alcohol in the room. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, I don't know what more there is to say about her at this point, but like, exactly. she's unhappy. Yeah. Um, I'm so glad to see Sister Evangelina for like three seconds. I know, like, uh, spoiler of the episode. Uh, she's not back in this episode. No, that was it. <laughs> that was it. I don't know. When she comes back. So no. We'll see. There's a mention, like, you just had an operation. I'm like, oh, I had to refresh my mind a little bit about, like, she was sick and she went away for an operation and we haven't seen her and now she's back again for a blink and you'll miss it. Just yeah. she and sister uh, Mary Cynthia ret- uh, come back at the same time, but Cynthia's actually in the episode and uh, sister Evangelina isn't really. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Which brings us to Cynthia's back. She is. She is Sister Mary Cynthia. She's Sister From Mary now Cynthia on, we now. We refer to her as such. Yeah. Okay. Such. <laughs> um, it's really nice to see her again. I was really happy to see her. Me too. Coming back. Me too. But it's awkward. Yeah. It's like she comes in and there isn't like I kind of expected there to be a big like greeting, welcome back embrace you into our arms again and there just wasn't that it was like here you are you're a you know religious sister now here's your private room yeah we've not given you midwifery we've given you district nursing because you're doing something different and so we'll kind of see how this plays out and because i honestly i don't even remember but she's really not back to her old role at all no. which is good because she's a religious sister now she's a nun or uh postulant, postulant at this point postulant but it was a little surprising how little fanfare there was for her yeah when she returns what she returns to like we have uh this ongoing motif of uh midwives and uh, sometimes nuns coming to Nanata's house and what are they greeted by Mm -hmm. and what she's greeted by is uh nurse crane who she doesn't know Mm -hmm. driving away when she's used to bikes yeah like we really the Nanata's house that she returns to is very different and it really reminds me that like when she left she left jenny Mm -hmm. and trixie and well jenny left just before her. or jenny left just before but still her. but still yeah like the nanata's house that she remembers i'm like forgetting who exactly she said goodbye to mm-hmm. but it was not these people it wasn't the it certainly wasn't uh phyllis yeah phyllis and barbara are new uh sister winifred i think is new i think so too we've so, introduced a lot of new characters <laughs> she's just coming back to an anata's house that isn't 
Vanilla is how she left. And that's mm-hmm. especially just symbolized by the first person she sees is Nurse Crane, mm-hmm. who is the one she knows the least. Yeah, absolutely. So let's get to um, the other two more major plots, which is Barbara finds this woman on the street who's clearly pregnant and tries to speak with her and she doesn't speak English. Yeah, this is, I mean, she's going to be one of the mothers of the episode. Mm. We're used to that. Um, she has more in future sections in this section, really all that happens is we meet her, right? Mm-hmm. She can't, her son speaks English, but her son is in school and can't tread. We see that literally like he's talking through the uh, school fence and has yeah. to run back in because recess is over and he can't translate for her anymore. Um, she's in pain, this woman. We learn later her name's Amira, mm-hmm. uh, but at this point we don't know her name. Yeah. She's in pain. She can't make herself understood. She's can't understand. She's alone. Mm-hmm. And that's symbolized, like, we see her standing literally alone. And then it's also symbolized by, like, her son's the only one who can translate for her. And he's in school and he runs away. Yeah, exactly. It's I really like it as a uh, very economical way of showing that she is alone and... Uh, doesn't know, like can't communicate because mm-hmm. we have the son who's the symbol of her ability to communicate in England literally run away and then she's on the other side of the fence and they just like smile at each other awkwardly. Mm-hmm. Um, I like this side of Barbara that she is bold and introduces herself and goes up to this woman. I feel like Barbara's kind of coming into her own after being shaky at first. Mm-hmm. I like to see that. Um, also, this this moment of a child translating for their parent is just uh, such a common immigrant story. Yeah. In fact, I was just talking to a friend of mine about some people down our street where the five-year-old is the one who knows English well enough to talk and the mom is still learning. I think they're from... Syria. And, the, and like <laughs> and the five year old you... translating the five year old being the one who speaks for the family. Can exactly. You can you imagine? Like I you're, you're, can you imagine your five year old speaking for your family? Like that's not something you would want. And but in in so many cases that ends up being what happens because children can learn language so much faster. And I like that this show reflects real life in that way. Mm-hmm. Would you like to talk about the Prendergasts? Yes. <laughs> no. <laughs> Would you like to talk about the Prendergasts? <laughs> so we see uh, Janice Prendergast giving birth in the hot weather, and uh, the first thing we see of them is her and her husband Ray in the other room, both praying the Lord's Prayer as they're... Uh, baby is born and she's holding on to a book that I didn't at the time like on the first watch in that first moment I didn't understand what that book meant but it's one of the two holy scriptures of the Christian science Mm -hmm. one is the bible and the other is the Christian science book I I didn't write down the title of it but it's like uh, so she that is the sign to us that she's a Christian scientist that they're Christian scientists um, we can talk more about what exactly that means for them uh, 
in the next section where it kind of seems to make more of a difference. We start mm-hmm. to understand it. And they're like, it's a story that we see like a lot on Call the Midwife and in real life. They're new parents. They don't know what to do. Their parenting is uh, more difficult than they expected. Their baby cries all the time and they don't know why. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have the nice little shot and the nice little moment of their neighbor being judgmental. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tale as old as time. Um, they, uh, he's yeah, diagnosed with a broken collarbone, which can happen as a birth injury sometimes. And so Sister Julianne assumes immediately that she missed it when Janice gave birth. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so he has to get uh, go immediately to the hospital not very long after being born for this injury. And in the continuing episode, we will... The rest yeah. of the episode, we'll see what happens. <laughs> so he goes to the hospital and they uh, are all scared about what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. That's really what we see at this point. All right, so I'll continue with the recap. After a search... Barbara finds the woman she saw before, a Saleti woman named Amira, whose son must translate for her, causing issues because, of course, he is a child. Janice Prendergast refuses to give any medicine to her baby as they are Christian scientists and believe that in prayer for pain. She does agree to Sister Julianne administering the medicine, however. Trixie and Sister Mary Cynthia find things awkward, as do Trixie and Tom. Trixie reconfirms her breakup with Tom. Janice arrives with Raymond at the clinic and Dr. Turner discovers yet another fracture. The midwives relax in the sun discussing Amira and Fred mentions the daughter of a man he knows who might speak some Saleti. Fred and Barbara visit the local fabric merchant who points them in the direction and Fred chats to her about Cold War preparations. The woman they find is able to translate and finally helps Barbara with an examination. So the first thing I want to like, uh, do you know, did you know what Saleti is? I didn't. I looked it up after this, but... So, did so did I. Go I didn't. Ahead. It wasn't familiar to me. Not uh, me either. Salet is a region in the northeast of Bangladesh and India. It kind of crosses Bangladesh and India. Um... At the time of this episode, it would have been uh, East Pakistan, mm. um, but it's now it's in what's now Bangladesh, and uh, so it's I, it's an interesting like what you were saying about uh, real life. It's just one of these details that makes a piece of fiction good. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, <laughs> like, specificity. They're from a specific place. Yeah. Uh, I think that's all the only reason why Saleti matters to us is it's a specific place. They're mm-hmm. not just like generic foreigners. And also they're from a smaller region of the Indian subcontinent because there would be people who spoke Hindi yeah. in Poplar. There would be people who probably who spoke Urdu in Poplar, but there aren't, isn't anyone around who speaks Saleti yeah. who can help her. So they're minorities even among the East Indian uh, community of mm-hmm. London. Exactly. Uh, and speaking of minorities, 
Janice and Ray are Christian scientists. What do you, what, if anything, do you know about the Christian science church? I feel like I used to know a lot more than I do now. I just cannot remember very much. I knew about the no medicine thing. So the Church of Christ Scientist is the official name of the uh, church. And it is not, uh, that does not mean that they are equally reverential to Christ and science, but rather that they consider Christ to be a scientist. Mm-hmm. Um, so as correctly depicted here, the Church of Christ Scientist believes that medicine is sometimes okay, but that prayer is more effective and prayer is more effective when it's not combined with medicine. So if you pray and take medicine, the me- the prayer gets less effective because you're diluting it with medicine. Hmm. They also believe that uh, all disease is a lie, uh, basically. So disease exists in the mind, uh, and that's a that that's a part of their belief. Um, the 60s was the height of Christian science churches worldwide. So this is the 50s. It's not quite there yet. But even at the height, there were only ever about 200,000 Christian science members in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, two-thirds of them in the U.S. So Janice and Ray are religious minorities. Yes, like, absolutely. There are not a lot of Christian scientists, and there never have been in London. And it makes sense that they're like pastor seems to be at their house quite a lot because he probably doesn't have a whole lot of congregants. (laughs) Yeah. Um, The other kind of thing I'll say about the Christian scientists is in throughout the 20th century, there were a number of cases of uh, the criminal cases accusing parents of neglect or abuse for failing to get medical treatment for their kids. Mm-hmm. In 1967, a woman in Cape Cod was convicted of manslaughter after her five-year-old died of pneumonia. Um, and she, that was the first case of someone actually being convicted. Hmm. Uh, and then in the 80s, the church was actually named as a... Uh, named in a suit as a defendant. Uh, and they were found liable. And then on appeal, it overturned. But so, like... It's contra- it's a controversial church and the when you see this episode and like uh their baby is in pain and she doesn't want to give him medicine. Yeah. That um, is very controversial. Yeah. You can see the distress that it causes. I mean the cause everyone causes mm. the viewer, but you can really see the distress it causes sister Julianne. Um Who's like, I'm the last, what'd she say? I'm the last person to uh, diminish or or challenge someone's faith. Mm-hmm. But your baby is in pain. Yeah, and he is an infant and he does not understand yep. your belief system. I like that she's okay with Sister Julianne administering the medicine. Yeah. They're like, I won't administer it myself, but I will allow you to. Yeah. So that's good. That's something. Um, the Christian science thing is always a little just below the surface in this episode. Like, it comes to a head at sometimes, but it's not explicitly said that that's why some of their neighbors are a little iffy on them. 
Yeah, and I feel like that it there why it was worth, I think, spending a little time here to explain all that is it's barely said. And like to jump ahead a little bit of a part to part that you haven't recapped yet, but I feel like we have to bring it up now, mm-hmm. is later in this episode, uh Dr. Turner's gonna sit like he has a the baby has a second broken le- uh bone, it's a broken leg this time, and Dr. Turner like you would, is going to suspect that they are abusing their son. Mm-hmm. And it turns out they aren't. Yeah. Like, to the end of the episode. Um, but there's, like, it is it is just a really interesting way of framing it because some people will watch this episode and say, no, but it turns out they are. Yeah. Because he has a broken collarbone and he's she's not giving him medicine. Like, the hitting him to break his leg is not required for this to be abusive will be some people's watching this episode's position. Mm -hmm. And we don't really engage with that. We just leave it under the surface. And sometimes in the past, I have uh, criticized the show for raising things they don't really engage. This time, I like it. (laughs) Yeah, I think that it's subtle, the kind of discrimination that they face is more subtle because it's kind of justified. Yeah. And it's like, explains a bit why, like when you watch this episode, you're like, why is he, uh, he's so defensive uh, when Dr. Turner think like he thinks Dr. Turner thinks that he's mistreating his son. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I feel like I, if I put myself in his position, I would be, offended and hurt but i would also be like do whatever you got to do i didn't hurt my kid so let's find a solution yeah exactly you as a you are doing the right thing by trying to keep my baby safe and healthy so it hurts my feelings that you think it might be me but like i can understand that you want what's best for my baby i feel like maybe i wouldn't in the in the actual position (laughs) but i feel like i'm sure you'd be very level-headed if someone i'm sure i would using your child but I feel like uh, it explains some of his, like, intense reaction that, like, people assume that they're, uh, people already were assuming that they were mistreating their kid. Yeah. Before any of this. And then it, the, like, extra level of, like, and maybe they were. hmm <laughs> Yeah. It's interesting. It is interesting. Um... I looked it up, by the way, and the modern uh, Christian Science Church uh, encourages their congregants to get vaccinated against COVID-19. <laughs> that is good to know. I'm glad you said that, actually. Yeah. Good to know. Um, let's move on. Uh, let's just go back to Amira for a moment. They, uh, The midwives talk about her in front of Fred and Fred is like, oh, there's old Suleiman. And he's, they're like, uh, I think you'll find he's dead. And he's like, yeah, but she had a, he had a daughter who could probably speak Saleti. And like, it's, it's so typical Fred of like, you feel like he's being unhelpful, but actually he's got his, like, his nose in so many people's business yeah. that of course he knows someone who could help them out. And that's why Fred is so great. Is that he is uh he is helpful, but also like 
I don't know. He adds humor. And I everything. think we get like top tier Fred in top this episode. Top tier Fred, exactly. He's like uh, irreverent but helpful. Seems like more canny than he seems, which is mm-hmm. my favorite kind of Fred. I Me don't too. like Fred when he's a bumbling fool. I like Fred when he people take him for a bumbling fool, but actually he knows what's going on. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I just love. We need someone female, Fred, and preferably alive. And he's like. <laughs> Yes. yes. <laughs> um, they find this woman and like, I, we kind of breezed a little bit by before that the kid who's, you know, seven-ish is translating for the mom on the other side of a curtain while they're trying to examine her. And of course, this little boy can't answer questions about his mother's physical health, nor can he... Uh, nor can they ask him for like permission for their mom to get an internal examination. Yeah. So that's why this, they're so desperate for a translator and they find one. Yeah, they, they need uh, they need to ask her questions. I mean, like, they could, I guess, but they need to ask her questions that no one involved is comfortable actually asking a little boy. Mm-hmm, exactly. Uh, Fred briefly talks to Violet, the owner of this shop, about the Cold War, and she's like, the Cold War isn't over, and he invites her to join their cause. Yeah, she's like, the war is over, and he's like, the Cold War isn't. Yeah. (laughs) Like, okay. Uh, I don't know, Fred is, uh, I like Fred, I think we get top tier Fred, I am personally, uh not super on board with uh i know i'm totally on board with civilian defense and preparedness i'm not i have no reservation about that i'm a little bit like roll my eyesy at his like we are always at war yeah exactly exactly (laughs) um um lastly for this section uh the awkwardness with trixie and tom they have just kind of yet another conversation on this it's like a peer like overlooking the water or whatever they're always having a conversation on the same bench yeah i don't know why exactly but the tom and trixie bench where he proposed is now their breakup bench and i don't know if this scene was necessarily needed but i think maybe i think so it was. i mean the two things about this scene that i think it weren't it was needed is uh we have Patsy saying, like, this all seems very abrupt. Patsy speaking for the audience, I think. Yeah, Saying, like, this all seems very abrupt. And so, like, I feel like for the audience and for the character, like, them having another conversation where, like, it seems abrupt, but I, it isn't uh, an impulsive choice. Mm-hmm. Like, I was avoiding you, and now I'm going to sit down, and we're going to talk again, and I'm going to confirm that, like, I just can't marry you. And she breaks his heart again, but also, yeah. like, it needed to be actually said for the sake of the audience, if not for the characters. But also for the characters. Like, Tom feels like this was all very abrupt and she mm-hmm. had to, like, sit down and have a conversation. Yeah, like, I'd rather think I found her, the person who willing to be with me. Oh. The thing about the be with you, that's, we didn't mention it, but since you bring it up, uh, the... 
reason that Amira is alone in London is she followed her husband when most of the women don't. And yeah. so there aren't women from her community around because the hus- the men go to England for work and the women stay in the village. But she wouldn't couldn't bear to be away from him. And the uh, son Farouk says that he... Uh, that she says, where he goes, we will go even to the moon. Mm-hmm. And then, like, next scene, Trixie talks to Tom and he's like, maybe I could leave. Maybe I could stay. Maybe I could, you know, leave early so that it's not awkward. And she's like, you need to go wherever you need to go. You should be free to go wherever you want to be. And you need someone who will go with you even to the moon. And so those, that's why, like, the scene matters. Yeah. They connect in, to in each other. Case, you're that, right. like... She watches Amira and realizes again, like the same, it's kind of reframing, but it's the same realization she had in the last episode that like, she can't be that for Mm -hmm. Tom. Mm -hmm. And she thinks he deserves someone who can be that for him. Absolutely. Um, And like, it's hard and sucky that he thought he'd found it, but I think it's good to underscore. The other thing about Trixie before we leave her behind Mm -hmm. is that like... The awkwardness with Mary Cynthia, the moment I want to just like a, a few minutes before the, the scene where she's talking to Tom, she's like sitting in her room, looking around, staring at the alcohol again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then she walks over, obviously, to say, to welcome Cynthia back, which she hasn't done yet. They haven't had a scene together. And she sees uh, Sister Mary Cynthia kneeling by her bed praying. And it's this this scene that does the same thing as Cynthia coming to Nanata's house and seeing Phyllis leaving. That, like, the Cynthia who came back is not the Cynthia that Trixie expected. Mm -hmm. Or, I mean, it's the one she expected. It's not the Cynthia that she knew. Yeah. And that's underscored. And then also the, like mirroring of Trixie looking at the bottle and then Trixie looking at Cynthia praying that like there's this Trixie is aimless and jealous of Mary Cynthia and I don't think she's I don't think she's jealous of her faith exactly but she's jealous that Cynthia has something a direction a direction yeah Trixie does Trixie in this moment is very directionless and yeah exactly struggling Maybe one more tiny thing before we leave this whole section, which is the the broken le- the baby with the broken leg is a really sad moment. But did you notice? I know you can't have a baby with an actual broken leg. So did you notice that Doctor Turner says there's no movement in the leg at all, and then the baby wiggles its leg <laughs> in that very moment. There's no movement in the leg at all. Wiggle, wiggle. There are a couple of moments in this episode where it's like he won't stop crying, and they they show the baby, and the baby is as like happy as can be. <laughs> It's great. It's great. It's fine. You can't and should not have an actually hurt baby. So what are you going to do? Yep. You have to pretend the baby's hurt. Yeah. They do a lot of good pretending in this show, but that particular... (laughs) This baby is very much not hurt. Yeah. All right. So uh, we move on to Dr. Turner telling the Prendergasts that they need to account for Raymond's injuries. This leads to distress for everyone Raymond is taken from his parents. Janice even suspects her husband for a moment. Dr. Turner struggles to imagine anyone hurting their child as he stands over Angela's crib. Later, 
Raymond's foster parent brings him in with another fracture, and Dr. Turner realizes that he has brittle bone disease. The Prendergasts are very upset with Dr. Turner. Later, he struggles with examining Fred due to missing the baby's issue. Sheila insists that he go home, and she takes over the clinic with Patsy helping. Some of the patients refuse to recognize Sheila as a real nurse, so she borrows a uniform from Nanatis. Janice insists that Raymond will be healed, causing Sister Julianne to remember her own faith, and passes that renewed belief on to Sheila. The next morning, Sheila is recognized as a nurse, much to her joy. When she returns home, Timothy shows her all the gifts the community has dropped off. The next day, he shows them to his father. Dr. Turner is depressed and in bed. Amira's son comes to fetch Barbara and Patsy when she is struggling to breathe. They discover she has diphtheria and call for an ambulance, but when it doesn't arrive, Sister Mary Cynthia goes to Dr. Turner, who is finally roused out of bed. He arrives, gives her an emergency tracheotomy, saving her life. He then administers vaccines to everyone in the house. And it ends with mature Jenny talking about love protecting as we see Amina with her new baby and Janice caring for Raymond. So that was a lot, but we already did talk a bit about Dr. Turner suspecting the Prendergasts. Um, when it's discovered that they weren't hurting him, that he has that he has this brittle bone disease, that's when Ray gets really upset and is like, "What my neighbors were accusing me of," mm-hmm. and and they had their baby taken away, and that's where it's never explicitly said that religion has something to do with that neighbors thinking badly, but it is it is there. Yeah, especially because when we actually saw the neighbors, they were like the holy rollers uh not you sister like the neighbor actually yeah. said something about their religion being like why she doesn't trust them mm. the moment when uh the the <laughs> there's a couple of things the uh foster mother comes in and the foster mother is beyond reproach so we all believe that uh um that it, she didn't hurt the baby she didn't hurt the baby and like I'm, that's good. I'm glad that we do. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, 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 yeah, whatever. I don't know. Maybe I'll cut set. Um, and then everyone's relieved. She has brittle bone disease. So, like, I guess that's, that's good. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, I looked up a bit about brittle bone disease and it is, it still has no cure. It is extremely rare so it makes sense that of course dr turner didn't think of it he um feels the fontanelle which if you don't know what that is that's the gap in a baby's skull when they're born uh before their before their skull fuses um and it's bigger than normal and i um brittle bone disease affects one in twenty thousand people so it's it's very rare uh, there's various types of it. When I looked it up, there's like types one through six, but likely it seems like Raymond has type three, which means Dr. Sister Julianne says he'll be in a wheelchair, but his life expectancy is about 10. Oh goodness. So 
it is pretty dire this kind of disease and especially more so in the 50s the like revelation that uh it's a disease and not abuse in that moment we have the uh we see the nuns singing Dr. Turner smoking and Trixie drinking, mm-hmm. juxtaposed. Uh, Dr. Turner, like, this mix of, as we, as we see later in the episode, like, relief and guilt and despair, mm-hmm. like, all at the same time. Absolutely. Um, and what the nurses are singing is Psalm 32, uh, which goes, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Mm. And I feel like, and there's more, uh, actually... Uh, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away uh, is also wow, in that song. Of, that's interesting. Um, so that's very appropriate. Um, but I feel like this, the blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven is like Ray and Janice's transgressions are covered in the sense that like they were accused of something that they weren't guilty of. So uh, their sins are are erased. Mm-hmm. We, the viewers, and uh, the characters believed them to be sinful, which isn't really what the psalm is talking about, but is like, in practice, they had sins on their head that have been erased. And also we have, like, Dr. Turner now has transgressions that he needs forgiven, mm-hmm. that he believes to need forgiven, and so does Trixie. And this, like, juxtaposition of the, like, blessed are they... Janice and Ray, whose transgressions have vanished. And uh, wouldn't Dr. Turner and Trixie be blessed if their transgressions could be forgotten, Mm -hmm. if their sins could be covered? Um, And then, yeah, like the image of my bones wasted away is pretty uh, pointed in in this context. Yeah. The solution to Raymond, the fact that he has brittle bone disease uh, is solved much earlier than usual in an episode because what this episode ends up really being about is Dr. Turner's struggle with that information. So often we have like a problem of the week we go through an entire episode, it's solved roughly at the end whereas this episode, it's solved much earlier because this episode is also about Dr. Turner and his struggles and his, his giving of himself to the point that he uh, can no longer practice medicine for a while. Yeah, we see and him examining can... Fred mm-hmm. and he has like what seems like a panic attack. Yeah. Like he's weak and has tremors in his hands and he has to sit down and he can't, he's overcome by like guilt or like it is guilt but particularly like self-doubt self-doubt exactly like this uh he's lost he believes himself not to be capable mm-hmm. um and just to, as a reminder in case people have forgotten dr turner did spend time in a mental institution just after world war Two or during world war Two mm-hmm. because of this exact thing of like seeing the horrors of war got to him and this is so we already knew this 
this wound. aspect, this wound exactly of his. And so it, this is another, uh, this is why I still love this show so much. Like I just keep saying it, this episode that it doesn't just go away. Mm-hmm. He went, he saw the horrors of war and was affected by them and went on. He's living his life now and he has a lot of things making him happy, but he all, that just, that doesn't just go away. It crops up again. And this is a moment where this is cropping up again. And he has the support of Sheila in a way that is almost a little bit too modern for this world, but also maybe not. I didn't live in the fifties that she recognizes it as sickness and illness. And she says that he is ill when it's, like depression and yeah i think PTSD. even in even in like a uh even if we imagine a past context where mental illness isn't taken as an illness i mean a past context this is still the case in 2022 but even if we like <laughs> exhaustion is recognized as an illness yes. even in the 50s even by like not especially progressive people in the 50s like he's working super hard and is exhausted that's a pretty straightforward diagnosis, I think. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But I do think, yeah, she recognizes, she talks to Sister Julianne about, like, I really like that scene where she, to him, is like, you're exhausted, you need to lie down, we'll take care of you, uh, you don't, you know, you need to rest, we can cover it, uh, you're ill. Mm-hmm. And then she talks to Sister Julianne and is like, I'm so afraid that he is that his shell shock is returning yeah, and he won't come back from it. And I love that scene because she can be supportive to him, but that doesn't mean that she doesn't have doubts herself. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I love that she has sister Julianne to come to with those doubts and sister, like the way that doubt works in this episode. Yes, exactly. That Let's sister Julianne that. can be this pillar of faith to, uh, Sheila even though she's been having all these doubts herself in this episode, doubting herself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just needed, not necessarily that she was like in this super doubt mode, but that she needed a reminder of her faith from someone who wasn't a nun. Mm-hmm. And that despite the fact that she lives a life of faith every day of her life, she can still be reminded by others of prayer, of the healing prayer. Yeah, and of, like, I just think the way that it cascades through that line of people Mm -hmm. that uh, I don't think we see, like, the episode description, I think, is uh, uh, deceptive. Uh, I don't know if you saw it. The episode description is like, Sister Julianne struggles with her faith. And I'm like, I don't think that's true at all. No, I don't think so either. But we do see in miniature Sister Julianne going through a similar thing to Dr. Turner in like turned way down. Mm -hmm. But she like feels like she, she doesn't say anything. It's all in the like acting and in the direction. But like she wants to be a source of both medical and spiritual support for this couple and they're missing each other mm-hmm. and she i think in the acting is like what am i what am i doing can mm-hmm. i do this i don't think she has a crisis of faith in even the tiniest bit of like does she have faith in god 
but I do think she has a minor crisis of faith in her competence as a spiritual support for this couple. Yes. I think we see that in the acting, not in the dialogue. Mm -hmm. And then she receives like a reminder. I think it's way overstating, as you said, it's like way overstating it to say that uh, she receives spiritual guidance from Janice Prendergast. But she receives like a little uh, reminder of faith in action. Mm-hmm. Um, that speaks to her. And I like also that like her faith isn't Janice Prendergast. So her faith in action doesn't look like Janice Prendergast's faith in action. Mm-hmm. But it, kind of echoes out to like, I understand, I'm reminded of what belief can do for someone, what faith can do for someone. He, Patrick has no faith in himself. You have faith in him. Uh, uh, Sheila has no faith in herself or not know maybe, but Sheila doubts her ability to support Patrick. So uh, Sister Julienne has faith in Sheila so Sheila can have faith in Patrick so Patrick can have faith in himself so he can support the community. And it's this like cascade and i really like how it works me too me too um speaking of community uh we didn't really mention but the community brings all these gifts to dr turner and he's so overwhelmed by it because it's like one family brought a packet of tea because it's all they could afford to give to him in a thanks for like him curing one of their family members Mm -hmm. and uh Timothy in this scene is a little too wise for his years, but I mean, that's always been Timothy's role, so it's okay. He, uh, he's like, you know, you're a good doctor, dad, and if I'm half the man, you are. That yeah. kind of thing. And it's very sweet, really. I feel again, like, in that scene, like... <sighs> I don't know. I felt like watching that scene, it didn't really matter what Timothy said. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Like, his dialogue could have been anything. Mm -hmm. Him just being like, Dad, this is because they love you. Yeah, exactly. And everything else he says is just like, flourish on that. That doesn't Mm -hmm. matter. (laughs) And because you did something, like, you know, you may have missed one diagnosis, but you didn't miss hundreds of people who are now coming and bringing food to our door. Yeah. And it's, uh, the twofold, the, like, two things that, uh, bring Dr. Turner out are this, like, tangible demonstration of his competence. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it's a demonstration of people's faith in him. It's a demonstration of people existing to have faith in him because of his intervention. So, it's like, two things at once. And then someone else comes who needs him. Yep, exactly. And it's, like... I guess that's good. No, it is good. Mm-hmm. But like... Because then he's able to show his competence. Because yes. his faith in himself has been shaken. So he sees the faith in the, that the community have in him. And then he is able to act on that and regain his faith in himself. Yes. Um, so we can move on to that, which is Amira has diphtheria, which is kind of... There's Chekhov's diphtheria. It was mentioned at the very beginning of the episode, and it went off before the end of the episode. I have literally that written in my notes. Chekhov's diphtheria. I knew you would. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And I, in my head, just as a side note, 
totally had diphtheria and dysentery confused. And I was like, diphtheria means you can't breathe? I thought it meant you pooped a lot, but that's dysentery. Mm. Diphtheria <laughs> is real bad. It's real bad. It's real bad. And, like, yeah. I, it's one of these diseases you hear thrown around and like, I didn't, I don't have, especially diseases you hear thrown around in historical dramas and we don't have it in Canada anymore, really. Yeah. Um, I've never encountered it or anyone who's had it. So I'm like, I don't really know which is bad and how bad and whatever. And I looked it up briefly. I'm like, you get it from the episode. But like, diphtheria is a really bad. Yeah, real bad, real bad. And he's able to perform the emergency tracheotomy, which is also something that's done on TV a lot. Yeah. But At least he didn't do this one with a pen. Exactly. This is him like with proper, he doesn't have like a surgical suite and doesn't wear gloves, which kind of bothers me. But he does have proper medical equipment. He's not sh- he's not stabbing someone with a pen, which is not good. And I I've attended so many first aid classes where they like bring that up that like don't do that, <laughs> don't 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 try and trache trach someone. Only a doctor should do that. <laughs> is this our first emergency tracheotomy on this show? <laughs> do we? I don't even know if we have others. Maybe I don't remember ever seeing one before this, and I I don't even. Remember we have no spoilers, this. so we don't know what happens. Yeah, after. we don't know what happens. After but this. <laughs> uh, I I only ask because, as you say, it is such a medical emergency trope. So like, mm-hmm. we're in season four before they hit that trope. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Good job, show. And then he's a competent doctor. Mm-hmm. He's not wearing gloves. Did he wash his hands? <laughs> I don't... Th- that whole procedure was... He touched things repeatedly, and it actually really bothered me. <laughs> she passed him, like, the the surgical knife, and he touched, like, the useful end with his bare hands. I'm oh, like, no. You don't do that. No. That is not the, the right way to do it. And okay. I'm like, I'm, I'm not a medical professional, but I know that that's... Let that me, was dirty. <laughs> let me raise a thing for you, though. Um, in, uh, manuscript handling on TV, they always wear white gloves, but in real life, you don't wear white gloves to handle manuscripts. So maybe it's the same with surgery. (laughs) Maybe you're not (laughs) supposed to wear gloves. (laughs) I, I can't even with what you just said. Um, um, the, maybe I'll bring it up later. Um, Sheila puts on her nurse's outfit, and I hadn't clued in until I watched it a second time with you that this is actually the first time Sheila's worn this, because she was a nurse and a midwife before, but she was in her habit. And since she got married, she's been in, like, you know, nice little suits that she wears to be (laughs) the receptionist, and she's never worn this, uh, the Nanatus nursing uniform. I love this moment where she puts it on and looks at herself in the mirror mm. and smiles. It is a callback to the moment in season one where she looks in the mirror wearing her habit and takes it off and is sad. Yep, exactly. She like sees herself in the clothes of her vocation and they make her unhappy. And then now she sees herself in the clothing of her vocation and it makes her happy. Exactly. And, I... and how excited she is that she opens the door and everyone calls her nurse. And then Patrick comes charging in and is like, nurse, get me your bag. And she turns around and he's like, oh. and she's like, I'll get it right away, doctor. And he's yeah. like, oh, yes, exactly. <laughs> I love it. I think I, I really, that genuinely really warmed my heart to have her 
just that scene of smiling at herself in the mm-hmm. uniform. I love it so much. Yep. Um, do you have anything else to say in this episode? I feel like we're pretty much at the end. Um, the voiceover at the very end mm. uh, doesn't always... The voiceover should always, but it doesn't always tie back to how we started. And I this episode, I feel like it does very nicely because the voiceover says, all the sunshine in the world can't save the frail. Mm-hmm. Sunshine, we start off the episode with sunshine's medicine and a tonic, and you go out in the sun and you live your happy life. And there's a uh, metaphorical meaning of like, sunshine is like uh, the power of positive thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, can't save the frail, but love has the power to strengthen and protect. Mm-hmm. Uh I like that. It's a strong ending, I think. And then the very last shot we see is uh, more Silheti pregnant women. Yeah. So there are more people coming and joining uh, Mira's community. Mm -hmm. And she's not alone anymore in this new woman. And we don't actually see them speak to each other. Maybe she's Indian. But (laughs) I think that would be a weird thing for the show to do. Um, In this subtext, it's pretty clear that she's like not alone anymore mm-hmm. and this new woman isn't alone because a mirror is there for her and it's again this like chain of she can support a mirror because she's been supported and now she can be there for someone else i think it wraps it all up very beautifully mm-hmm. what was your favorite part of this episode my favorite part was Sheila looking at herself in her nurse uniform and smiling and that being a callback to season one. And like, I, that was really touching to me. Mm-hmm. How about you? What was your favorite part? Uh, similarly, when uh, Dr. Turner comes in and says, nurse, get me my bag. And then it turns <laughs> out to be her. That was, I think that's my favorite moment. We've been a little... Um, We've had our doubts about season four. <laughs> yes. Season four has not been our favorite season, but I this episode I thought was really good. Yeah, this was a very strong episode. I thought it was really good. And this is a new writer, so hopefully we see more from them. Her. Her? Yeah. Her. Yeah. I mean, we will. Um, if... You want to talk to us if you have thoughts about this episode, if we said something about... If you want to tell me about how doctors do need to wear gloves, actually. (laughs) (laughs) No, we don't need to know that. We do know that. (laughs) Except you. You're not that kind of doctor. I'm not that kind of doctor. The kind of doctor that I am, we shouldn't wear gloves. Mm -hmm, I I don't actually personally interact with manuscripts, but someone with my credentials could. Um, Anyway, you can talk to us uh, on Twitter... At Poplar Opinion. You can send us an email, poplar at clockworksacademy.com. We would be absolutely delighted to hear from you anything that you have to say, add questions, Mm -hmm. feedback of any kind. Uh, You can join us on our uh, Discord and discuss this episode with other people who are in the Discord. That's free and open to anyone, and there will be a link in the uh, description. And if you would like to support popular opinion and the things that we do you can do that at uh, patreon.com slash clockworkscast there will be a link to that also in the description for this episode 
Thank you so much for listening. I have been Paul Moffat. And I've been Jan Moffat. And that's just my popular opinion. Thank you.